Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss topics vital to the future of all of us. We present problem solvers, solution makers, who share their perspective and experiences with us in order to spark your discussions among and between yours and other generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. If you missed the first four episodes of the series on housing or any of our four-part series on food, or just want to listen to certain episodes again, you can find them on WTBR-FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any place you stream your podcast. You could even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcasts. In this episode, we will explore the issue of affordable housing. First, we'll take a look at what affordable housing means today and for whom housing is affordable. Then we'll look at what housing needs exist for different segments of the population. And lastly, we'll look at what is being done around the country to increase the supply of affordable housing. We'll speak to experts from Berkshire County, Massachusetts, which has a total population of about 122,000 people and its losing population. And we'll also speak with experts from Bear County, Texas, which includes San Antonio and has a population of about 2 million people and it is growing. Both confront a lack of affordable housing for its population. To look at the situation in rural western Massachusetts, we'll speak to June Wolf, housing director for Construct an affordable housing provider in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and Barney Stein, a real estate broker with Lance Vermillion Real Estate, who is a member of the Construct Board. We'll also look at the state of affordable housing in urban San Antonio, Texas, through LISC San Antonio Executive Director Leela Powell and Victor Maramontes, managing partner of CM Properties, developers of multifamily affordable housing, including an award-winning affordable housing project, which includes the adaptive reuse of a former seminary. Our first guest is Barney Stein. Barney went to McGill University and studied architecture at Rhode Island School of Design. Barney Stein with Lance Vermeulen Realtors in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. You've been a realtor in the Berkshires, which is in Western Massachusetts, for 15 years, and there have been quite a few changes, evolution and periods we go through growth and pullback of things. But there's been a lack of affordable housing for low-income families for quite a while. And now it seems to me that it's extending to people who are not regarded as low-income, but to workforce housing and other things. Yeah, you're right. I think there's always a baseline assumption that people at the lower end are struggling. I think that's just the nature of our system, maybe. 
But now workforce housing is this term. It's instead of saying affordable housing, we say workforce housing because it drives home the point that these are the nurses, the waiters and waitresses, the teachers, the firemen, the policemen and women that the workforce housing term now it's your neighbors. It's not that there's anything pejorative about helping the poorest of society, but it's not just the poorest of society. It's also what we consider the people that serve our communities and make them work. If you want to go to a restaurant and have a waiter or waitress to bring you your food, or if you go to the hospital and you want to have a nurse by your side or a teacher teaching your kids, these people need to be able to live in the community. And that's the problem these days. And when did you start seeing this? It's always been true. I'd say the whole 15 years I've been here, but the COVID frenzy, as I call it, it exacerbated it hugely. Yeah. So these last couple of years took a, a, a problem and just made it almost twice as bad. When you have houses to sell. And right now they're few and far between, aren't they? There seem to be bidding wars. What is your experience? There are bidding wars. That seems to be what is happening at this moment. And what are the people telling you who have gone to auction after auction or a bid after bid? Are they in housing and stay put? Are they looking in other areas? What are you seeing happening with all of the people who don't uh, get the... It's not fun for them. They either, if they can keep looking, they keep looking or they give up or I don't have a lot of data just in my own personal sphere or the sphere of this office, but we certainly see them over and over again. Barney is on the board of Construct, a nonprofit provider of affordable and supportive services in the Southern Berkshires. He said that June Wolf, housing director of Construct, was a whiz about housing locally. June? Can you give an idea of the population that is in need of housing and how many people you can serve? So right now, we have over 70 units, if you count the transitional housing, and we have 670 families on our wait list. So we're clearly not really touching the need as far as the number of people who need housing. As far as who we serve, for a long time, conventional wisdom said that affordable housing was for people who made 60% or less area median income. A family of two, that's about $44,000, like a single mom, who would that be? So that would be maybe a teaching assistant or a bank teller or someone who's getting started at the post office or who else have we had? We've had part-time police officers. So these are really important people to have in a community. You know, you have to have them. We said that anybody over 60% of air median income should be fine, should be able to find housing. But then what happened is, first of all, the zoning in Berkshire County really discourages multifamily housing of any kind, not just affordable, but any kind of multifamily housing. And so we weren't getting a lot of multifamily projects built. And I say we, I mean, as in the county. And the 
the buildings that were becoming multifamily were usually single family homes that were divided up. This was very old architecture that was then being reused for multifamily housing. Then in addition to that, many of the extra units, so accessory dwelling units or extra units in someone's house, converted to vacation rentals, which makes a lot of sense if you're the person who owns that unit. It's a lot easier to have a vacation rental than it is to have a full-time rental in Massachusetts. So a lot of landlords just quit. They quit being landlords and they just went to vacation rentals. There became this increasing gap between what we could provide and what the market was providing. So our unit at 60% of area median income might go for $900 a month. If someone was even slightly over income for that, where they would be paying a third of their income for that rent, the next available unit they could find would be about $2,500. So now they're paying more than 50% of their income for rent. There was a shortage of units, period. And then there was a shortage of units that filled that gap between 60% of area median income and 150% of area median income. So we always used to say affordable housing, capital A affordable is 60% of lesser median income, but that little a affordable housing is a dire need right now. And I think that's why we're getting so much interest from the towns and affordable housing trusts, because they're saying, now we're not talking about someone who's starting out in their field. Now we're talking about a dental hygienist who's full-time, well-paid. Now we're talking about actual teachers, police officers, firefighters. Well, you told me a specific example of what is happening with the firefighters. Could you tell me about that? Sure. So what's happening is because of this affordability gap, we are actually losing a big part of our population. People between the ages of 20 and 40, we call it the millennial valley. They are leaving. The people who are moving in to our community are usually in their 60s. We have this valley of young people, also known as parents, also known as producers. They're people who work in our community and and contribute to our community. I'm not saying that people in their 60s don't. People in their 60s usually are great volunteers. They're wonderful board members, but they're very rarely firefighters. And so All of our towns in Southern Berkshire, except for Great Barrington and Lenox, are volunteer fire departments. Great Barrington is paid. Lenox is a mix of paid and volunteers. And all of those towns, including Great Barrington and Lenox, are short on firefighters because the average age of their firefighters is now in their 60s. Retirement age is 70. And there just aren't enough young people to go on calls. So we have some towns. Well, we're in the Berkshires, right? So most of our towns have mountains in them. And so the fire departments do something called mountain rescues where someone gets lost and their GPS doesn't work and their phone dies and they call 911 and the crew has to go there and get them off the mountain. Sometimes it's easy. They just have to find them and lend them a flashlight. And sometimes they're actually hurt and they have to go up with ropes and stretchers and bring them down. You need youth and vitality and strength to do that. That's hard. It's physically hard. So same thing with the trades. Right now we have a building boom. All these people who have bought houses immediately want to renovate those houses. And so our tradesmen are so busy. But 27 of them have ads in the paper looking for help. And those are just the ones that are asking. There's a lot more that would take help if they could get it. 
because our tradesmen are also aging. The trades is one of the few places where you can really make a decent living here without a college education. It's also one of the, it's the only place in Western Massachusetts that has pay equity. If you're a woman in the trades, you'll make what a man makes. It's a great way of life. And the tradesmen here get a lot of respect. But what's happening is that as the tradesmen are getting older and getting into their 60s, they have no one to pass their shop onto. And so they just close it. They just close it. And so we actually, even though we have so much demand, we actually have a dwindling number of trade shops. So if you have a business, we, I call it a shop. If you have a business, like a plumbing business, you should be thriving right now. But then if you have no one to pass it on to, that thriving business just shuts down. It doesn't get sold. It just shuts down. And then we have one fewer shop, one fewer tradesmen to call. What you're describing is how the lack of affordable housing for anyone at any level really is now affecting the health of the entire community. So it becomes not just a poor people problem. It's a community health problem. It's everybody's problem. Yeah, it's everybody's problem. And it's not just health. People come to the Berkshires because we have all these cultural attractions. We have wonderful restaurants. We have lots of things to do, but we don't have staff. Now, for the first time, we are actually hearing from employers. Employers are calling us and saying, can you build some housing for our employees? We have people we can hire, but they can't find a place to live. And so they won't stay. And that, I hate to be a doomsayer, but what happens is when people have to commute from Adams to Great Barrington to do their work, eventually they're going to find work in Adams. Or if they're coming from Claverack, they're going to find work out there. And they're going to say, well, that'll save me a lot of money. I won't have to pay for gas. Also a lot of time, a lot of driving. So eventually what happens is even those people who are willing to work, who have work, say, never mind. Well, I would like to get back to how you are part of the solution in terms of looking for ways to to help employers find people not as a employment agency, but in terms of providing housing. So can you tell me about what you're working on now to try and increase the supply and also to help the people in need? I want to start by saying that you're also part of the solution in the sense that getting the word out that Affordable housing is so necessary and important. And as you say, it's not just about housing the destitute. It's about housing our working people. So COVID made this problem much, much worse, much worse, because the available housing that we had all got bought up. And then our tradesmen all got very busy. Then once all the single family homes got bought up, people started buying multifamily homes and converting them to single family homes. So we lost lots of apartments at the market rate. And yeah, so that it did make it much, much worse. But getting the word out saying that this isn't just about, oh, you know, let's house the poorest of the poor people. We're trying to just house everybody. We're trying to house the people who want to work here and wait tables at your favorite restaurant and work the ski lift and work at your cultural attractions because all of those people need somewhere to live. 
You'll hear about some of the things that Construct is doing to increase the housing supply later. Right now, Leela Powell put some numbers and nuances on the numbers of unhoused and underhoused people in San Antonio. Leela Powell is a graduate of Stanford University and received her master's from the University of Texas School of Architecture in Community and Urban Planning. Leela Powell, a planner's planner, as advisor to two mayors of San Antonio who were planners, and now as executive director of LISP San Antonio, is in the thick of affordable housing problems and working toward solutions. Could you give me an idea of what the housing deficit is in this city of about 1.7 million people in in terms of lack of affordable housing? That's an interesting question because you're really addressing multiple problems there. I'll just illustrate it by saying at some point, someone threw out the number, they added up all the folks who were either inadequately housed or were paying too much and said, all right, we need 150,000 new units of affordable housing. But that's actually not an accurate way of looking at the problem. If we put 150,000 new units of affordable housing on the ground tomorrow by magic, we snapped our fingers and there they were, that would destroy our housing market. That number of new units is not sustainable. Think about three different types of units. Maybe a family is living in a unit where they're paying $200 more a month than is actually sustainable on their budget. Maybe another family is living in a unit that is severely deteriorated to the point where it doesn't meet housing safety standards. And maybe another family is living in a unit where they're overcrowded. The same remedy doesn't apply to each of those housing units. One family has a relatively small gap, and maybe that family, if an individual there has some additional workforce training, or if we figure out a way to consolidate their bills through financial counseling, or if we put a new roof on there and reduce their utility expenditures, that family then is in an affordable unit. So that's a relatively small outlay. Looking at the second unit, maybe an older individual who's been in a house for 60 years in some cases, and that house has literally fallen down around them. The solutions there are not as simple, and they could range from relocation, which is an expensive process, and rebuilding that unit. And in some cases, you're talking about $100,000 to $150,000 a unit for an owner occupied rehab program. Then for the final family with overcrowding, that may be the case where we would like to be building a new supply of affordable housing so that the mom and daughter who are sleeping on the sofa can move into their own apartment. So it's difficult, but certainly we know that 150,000 families are inadequately or inappropriately or housed too expensively. Leela has informed us about the nuances in the numbers. We'll speak with her later about some of the ways to fill in the gaps. Now we'll turn to Victor Miramontes. Victor Miramontes brings his skills and experience from his undergraduate, law degree, and master's from Stanford University, his years working in finance as a banker, and as the first U.S. head of North American Development Bank, and now decades as a developer and businessman to create the complex structure necessary to build and operate an affordable housing project. CM Partners, which he formed with Henry Cisneros, former secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development and former mayor of San Antonio, 
has just completed an adaptive reuse of a former Catholic seminary, which required all of Victor's skills. The result was recognized with the Jack Kemp Award from the Urban Land Institute. Victor Miramontes, it's been 20 years since I've interviewed you, but not 20 years since I've seen you. And 40 years almost since we worked together. You received the Urban Land Institute Jack Kemp Chairman's Award for Outstanding Achievement in the areas of affordability, innovative financing, building technologies, proximity to employment centers and transportation hubs, quality design, and involvement of public and private partnerships. And so I sort of want to tease this out and see what elements in particular were unique in this enterprise. The St. John, given all the transactions I've done in my career, is probably the most complex transaction I've ever done, without a doubt. And the reason for that is because it has three or four layers of very complex institutional players, and each one has its rules that they have to live by. It's on a 99-year ground lease from the Archdiocese of San Antonio. It's adjacent to Mission Concepcion, which is now a World Heritage Site. It's on an archaeological site, which is governed by the city of San Antonio. It has historic tax credits for three or four buildings that were on the site that are over 100 years old. And we have low-income housing tax credits for the bulk of the new product that's on it. And then we're, we're dealing with HUD on the permanent takeout. As I said, each one of those institutional players has a set of rules, and they don't necessarily fit together easily. So you have to do some negotiating. You have to do some making things happen. So a lot of it is dialogue with all the parties. I'll have to say this, that project is so complex that had not all the parties agreed to cooperate, it would have failed. It was one of these deals that required full cooperation. So it wasn't going in some form before you got involved. Nope. You And you identified the site and the possibility to do an adaptive reuse? I came in a little bit after that. Henry was involved with identifying the site and getting the archdiocese to uh, work with us through an RFP process. The site is a 14-acre site, which was principally a seminary that was stopped operations about 30 years ago. It had been used for other things in the past 30 years, but it had gone into disrepair. It had been abandoned. The main building almost burned out twice due to people who were living within it. And so it was an abandoned nuisance site. The archdiocese very much wanted to do something about it, but they didn't have the monies. It was a very expensive project. And so they needed to find a party that come in and do something with that site. It's located right on the, near the San Antonio River, just south of downtown. It's an ideal multifamily site, but it's located in literally a 300-year-old neighborhood. And so the neighbors did not want gentrification. So we had to apply a lot of rules that tried to protect the character of the neighborhood while at the same time moving into the future. So we wanted to stimulate economic growth. We wanted to stimulate quality of life. We wanted to stimulate just a recognition of the heritage that San Antonio represents. And we did it. And that's why the Jack Kemp Award is so special because it's a national recognition of a very unique project that we were successful in accomplishing. It took seven years. It's not overnight. How many units are they? Our partner is the San Antonio Housing Trust. So it is an affordable project, 75% of the units, 220 units is the number size of the project. 75% are affordable and 25% are market rate. We're now at 98% occupancy. 
we opened it up during the pandemic, so it was somewhat difficult to get it to the proper levels due to the pandemic, and we, we struggled. But we're now 90% occupancy. It's a beautiful project. It, it's got a wonderful front area, green area, because it's an archaeological site. We can't dig an inch into the ground there. It, it preserves and it celebrates the culture of San Antonio. Adjacent to us, literally feet, is Mission Concepcion, a 300-year-old mission, a jewel of a mission. Absolutely. What a project. Incredible. And without all of those parties, could it have been done at all? Some of the parties, you might have come up with alternative solutions, but without the key parties, they would never would have gained, gained traction. So you needed the participation of the historic tax credit market, the low-income housing tax credit market. You needed the archdiocese. So all the parties contributed significantly to the success of the project. There are some minor things we could have tweaked here and there that were not critical, but they enhanced the project. We had a VIP tour a week before the pandemic quarantines began, and our first and only set of folks that toured it initially were the neighbors. They put up with a couple of years of construction noise and dust, so we wanted them to be the first. It was a respect for where we side of the project and we were neighbors ourselves with them. In your affordable housing projects, are there ancillary services provided? Yes, yes. yes. And what are they and who do you affiliate with? Typically, each project has a set of points that you have to achieve in order to meet the minimums for on the state of Texas to certify you as an affordable project, which is critical because that's how you get your tax credits. And typically you have different social service groups that are either located nearby that project. And it depends on the project. This is not a seniors project. This is a mixed income, mixed age project, though we do have some seniors there. So you'll have a mixture of after school care. You'll have some senior up to things like that. If this were a seniors project, it would be exclusively aimed at seniors in terms of health, wellness, healthcare issues. Now that Victor has illuminated many of the elements that go into putting together an affordable housing project that is actually sustainable, let's go back to Lila Powell for fuller instruction as to who needs affordable housing and what affordable housing is. Affordable housing is really just, a, it's a formula. Are you paying more than 30% of your income for your rent or your mortgage? Now, some individuals may choose to make a decision. You might want to buy a fancy new condo near the Pearl because you don't have to have a car. Maybe you work down there. So you're okay spending 40% of your income on that investment because you think it's going to appreciate and because you don't need to have an extra expense of tens of thousands of dollars. And San Antonio is one of those cities where transportation expenses can outpace housing expenses for some families. And it used to be called drive till you qualify. You get in your car and you drive out to the suburbs and you find a place where the land is cheap enough and, and you can buy a new home there and become a homeowner. But that element, particularly now with gas prices going through the roof and people understanding energy instability will continue to be a factor going forward. It may not make sense <laughs> to to balance your transportation expenses, not to mention the amount of time it takes out of your day if you're commuting a couple hours a day. So housing affordability is another one of those terms that we use lots of different ways to describe it. 
even a phrase like public housing. And you say public housing, some people may automatically think of a housing project. Pruitt-Igo, the infamous Chicago developments, some of which were demolished only a few years after they were completed. But public housing also includes a housing voucher where a family can take a, a Section 8 certificate and rent from any landlord. And so that, well, any landlord that will accept the voucher, but that's another story. So the terms that we all use are vague and fuzzy. And that's one of the challenges that we see when a project or a development plan is put in place and a neighborhood may just instinctively say, I don't want that here. I don't want that, even in cases where the average income of folks in the new housing might be higher than the income of folks in the existing neighborhood, because there's all kinds of images that come to mind when we say affordable housing or public housing or tax credits or vouchers. And I think workforce housing, the use of that phrase is an attempt to get around that, to say, these are people like you and me. If you're willing to take your kid to daycare and leave your daughter with a woman for eight hours a day, but you don't want that woman living in your neighborhood, that's something really to think about because these are the individuals. This is the nurse who's taking care of your father during the day when you can't be with him at a senior care facility. And so the the opposition to workforce housing may be lessened because it's presented that way. There's all kinds of images that come to mind when we say affordable housing or public housing or tax credits or vouchers. And I think workforce housing, the use of that phrase is an attempt to get around that, to say, these are people like you and me. Victor Miramontes agrees. Housing affordability is becoming a major issue all over the country. It's been critical in places like California and the East Coast, but it's reaching every neighborhood and every community throughout. And all segments. And, and, and It's a continuum. It goes from special services, which would be homeless services, all the way to the most expensive homes in the community. So the housing continuum goes from very little to outrageously expensive. What you really, what we target is that middle band, which is the workforce housing. The working people need to live and work near their jobs or else their commute time is way too long. You're taking away from their time with their kids. And so quality of life, suffers immensely if you don't have affordable housing within a reasonable distance from a workplace. One of the things I learned when I was on the finance working group for the mayor's task force for affordable housing a few years ago was the economics of affordable housing. The rents that you could get were not sufficient to cover the debt of the cost of building. Because the economics, the difference between rental income and the cost of construction and maintenance wouldn't right. be it, it, it doesn't work. Uh, the numbers don't work. Like I said, Henry and I try to do a project like we did here in San Antonio, California for a good 15 years, and we can never make the numbers work because the cost of construction, the cost of land in California, put it out of reach. In Texas, it's becoming more difficult, but it's still viable because the low-income housing tax credits provide you with equity that is basically contributed to the project. And after 15 years, it's absorbed by the project. It's a big subsidy. Without that, it won't work. The goal is to find this balance of mixed incomes, 
where you have people at the low end of the scale and folks in the middle of the scale and a market rate. So you have a mixture of people living together. You really don't want to create isolated silos of wealth, either all wealthy or all poor. You want a mixture because people tend to learn from each other. They share information, they share knowledge, they share friendships. And that's what makes these projects real viable. Well, you have another one that has recently been in the news. It sounds like it was quite an undertaking. The view, though, you took a building that had never been fully completed and brought it to life for workforce housing. No, this one is not workforce. This is market rate. It's going to be a little higher than the, the other projects we've done. That project was a special project. It's located right next to the medical center. It's a good location. The reason I thought it was workforce and not in the sense of being subsidized, but their studio and one, so there's small units in there. Uh, and I'm sure that helps with the economics, but it also is, there are all the, the nurses and all of the personnel who work there. Yeah, who, well, you, you hit the nail on the head there. In my mind's eye, I envisioned a nurse, in this case a female, but it could be a male, a nurse working a late shift, getting out of work late, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, dead tired after a long day of working with patients, especially during the pandemic, and coming home and wanting to feel secure and find a place that was just comforting. And yes, this is a market rate project, but for that nurse that gets out at two in the morning to drive into a secure location, go to their apartment and kick off their shoes and literally just relax for a bit and then go to sleep, get up and do it again. Yeah. That's the nature of what we do in our lives. So that one also was a long time coming too. It was a, l a lengthy project. That one we acquired from two prior owners. It was built during the prior downturn in 2007 and eight. And what happened was it never got completed. And then another group came in and bought it and started construction on it, but the units were too big. It didn't work. You couldn't make the numbers work. So we came in and made it into smaller units out of necessity for two reasons. One, that's made the numbers work. And two, it addressed that point you made. It's aimed at trying to keep it affordable for someone who's making a good salary, but they can't afford, you know, much more than what is being charged. Here. And that's really what I mean by the tiered need yeah. of affordability, that there's so much. It's a question of who is the target and what they can afford. So I remember when we were talking 20 years ago, at that time you had a second family housing project and you were doing urban infill and we talked about front porches and did that ever get built? Yep. Yeah. No, uh, and is that a viable model? Was that low income? Was it a That was workforce housing. It was aimed at people who made meeting incomes. Just to report on the front porches, I still believe in that. The project that St. John has two locations on site where we have front porches with Adirondack chairs sitting out front of these building systems. So you are totally consistent. <laughs> that was a prototype for, yeah. for that. Real quick on that. We did single family housing infill because it was a, it's the way to stability and wealth for a family in the United States is typically when someone buys a home. We got caught in the 2007 downturn, which is a year before the 2008 downturn, the mortgage market evaporated in 2007, and we had to pivot from a for-sale product into a multifamily product because literally the entire financial structure supporting that disappeared back then. It's come back since then, 
but we've already pivoted to Bolton family. Very interesting. I wondered about the viability of that kind of community now. It's, it's much more difficult to do because you need scale and you need to find parcels of infill land, which still exists. And typically they're now townhomes or they're higher density. They're two, three story structures. It's doable, but it's, it's a different product. It's much more urban. It's not suburban and you're a lot closer to work or a lot closer to activities. On May 7, 2022, the voters of San Antonio approved a $150 million bond to pay for affordable housing and rental assistance. Lila Powell worked with the mayor's task force on affordable housing that led to that action. I spoke with her before the bond package passed. Lila, how are the funds from the $150 million bond going to be used? I think that housing task force document, first of all, drew a lot of attention to the housing needs in the community and the tens of thousands of individuals, particularly at the lowest income levels, below 30% AMI, there's somewhere around 30,000 households that are either inadequately housed or unaffordably housed. And, and those are two different things. So that could be overcrowding, it could be substandard housing, or it could be that they're paying what HUD defines as an unaffordable rent, which is more than 30% of your income. So we know that the housing burdens that our community is facing are getting more severe. The pandemic has also negatively impacted the lowest income residents. And we also know the work of the task force, because it was divided into different committees that looked at different aspects of housing, we know that housing has multiple kinds of impacts. So it stabilizes families. We know that Children do better when they're in a stable housing situation. But we also know that the biggest predictor for someone to be readmitted after a hospital stay is whether they, they have housing stability or they are experiencing instability in their housing situation. So we looked at housing and the role it plays in the community. It's helping build assets if you're a homeowner. It's addressing the need of a, a substantial portion of the population for assistance, sometimes assistance with activities of daily living, sometimes just a place where we can build community opportunities like after-school care or educational opportunities. And so I think the real accomplishment of the Mayor's Housing Task Force was to surface all of these issues, to engage the community, to set goals that could be met. I think that at some point people just began to feel that this was overwhelming. So I think one thing that the housing task force did very well was to lay out what those challenges were. And then the follow-up has been to create an implementation plan that council adopted last December. So it's a hugely successful plan to find the data, to engage people in solutions, and then to put together a specific implementation plan that addresses the findings of the housing task force to name the partners, to provide timelines, to start to assemble funding sources. The housing task force started that process and the strategic housing implementation plan, which was adopted in December by the San Antonio City Council, December 2021, is the next step of, of the process that began with the housing task force. As Leela mentioned, a revelation in the course of working through the mayor's task force was the deficit in housing for very low-income households. But the need for affordable housing remains large across the spectrum. 
when we talk about affordable housing, we almost forget that we're talking about hundreds and thousands of people who are unhoused or inadequately housed. I asked June Wolf what happens to the 670 people on the construct waiting list while they're waiting. I have to say that this is pretty anecdotal because it's not as obvious a problem as in California. We do not have tent cities on our sidewalks. We have a few very visible homeless people in the town of Great Barrington, but the rest of them, we just hear their stories as they come in. So I'll tell you some of the stories. Um, We have had people who live in their cars. We have people who camp. So they will, they live in a tent. We've had people, we call it the Berkshire Shuffle, where they will rent a seasonal rental from September for as long as they can keep it, April or May. And then they move to the campgrounds at that point. Either they rent a camper or they uh, double up with someone or, again, they camp. We have people who uh, couch surf, sometimes with their kids. And we have families that are doubled and tripled up. So sometimes we get that in our housing. So our housing is very strict. We rent to a certain number of people. Those are the people on the lease. And if you want to add anyone, you have to tell us. (laughs) So because it could change your income eligibility, right? But so every time we hear about someone who has moved someone in, we meet with them and we try to solve that. We try to get that person their own housing, or we try to add them to the lease of the person who's there. So that's how we're aware of the problem that, you know, the, all those people on the waiting list, we stay in touch with them and we, we keep trying to find out if they need housing. But I once housed someone who'd been on the waiting list and not just my waiting list, but lots of waiting lists for 18 years. She got on the waiting list, which she was expecting her son. And when I housed her, he was a senior in high school. So what did she do in the interim? She was doubled up with her mom for quite a while, which was a very dysfunctional situation. She, so then she doubled up with her dad. She stayed with friends for a really long time. But that kind of thing, when you don't have an address, that complicates everything. You, if you don't have an address, you can't get food stamps. It, it complicates everything. What an undertaking to try <laughs> and solve the problem. We'll go back to Leela Powell to get some more detail on how the proceeds of the $150 million bond for affordable housing approved by San Antonio voters will be used. On the macro level, the city of San Antonio was very careful to match funding sources to needs in the strategic housing implementation plan. But the bond that you referenced is broken down into several different categories. Specific projects are not named. So there will be a process after the funding is approved to determine which projects can be funded over the next five years. There's a small amount of funding set aside for new homeownership, larger amounts set aside for homeowner repair. And for example, a suggestion made during the bond process by the citizen committee that approved these categories, and I served on that citizen bond committee, was that we tie in the owner-occupied repair to the the demolition issues that lower-income homeowners face in this community, where the homes are deemed uh, unsafe for human habitation. 
and then are demolished. So an individual loses a home, but we also lose a unit of housing. So we've got funding set aside for owner-occupied repair. There's funding set aside for the creation of new multifamily units and also the repair of existing multifamily units. And then some dollars specifically for PSH, for permanent supportive housing, which targets folks coming out of homelessness. Leela and I spoke about how ADUs could increase affordable housing. Communities tend not to have the NIMBY or not in my backyard reaction to ADUs, accessory dwelling units, the way they do to other efforts to build affordable housing. There are also some types of housing that reduce that NIMBY reaction. And we talked a little bit about accessory dwelling units. If your tia or your your mother-in-law is living in your backyard, a lot of people don't see that as affordable housing. They see that as a way of caring for your family or your kid who didn't quite launch after college. He's come home and he's in your garage apartment. Most people don't have a negative reaction to that. They see that as part of a way of caring and continuing to provide for loved ones. And yet those are affordable housing units. And adding those to our neighborhoods can really increase not just the supply of units, but also the supply in some cases of accessible units because they can be developed specifically with universal design and other features that might help an aging population. And furthermore, they help stabilize neighborhoods by providing another source of income for a homeowner and making it more likely that they'll be able to continue to pay mortgage or property taxes. Are they available through the zoning as it exists now? Are you able to do it in San Antonio? San Antonio has a very progressive zoning code around ADUs, accessory dwelling units, but we are working to make it more progressive in this current round of UDC which is the development code, amendments. And so ideally by the end of the year, we'll have removed some of the requirements that made it a little more onerous on the homeowner. And that could be things like the relationship of the size of the unit to the house. In an older neighborhood, you may have some homes that are under a thousand square feet. And it's perfectly reasonable to, if you have a big enough lot, to put a six or 700 square foot unit on that property as an additional housing unit. And so making some changes for utility access. So there are some changes coming up to the UDC that will make it easier to develop ADUs, but I don't think that's enough. For one thing, it's possible that making ADUs easier to build will actually put some pressure on older neighborhoods Because there are many parts of San Antonio where there are homeowners associations or other restrictions, and you can't put an ADU in because of restrictions, the covenants on the property. What we don't want to have happen is well-to-do investors look around and say, oh, I want to go to this older neighborhood, buy a house there, put an ADU in my backyard, get extra income, unless we also provide that same benefit to existing homeowners in older neighborhoods who may be lower income. So what does that look like? It looks like a suite of other supports around ADU development, standardized plans that have already been approved that are available at no cost, grants to low-income families, technical assistance around the development process, mortgage products for lower-income homebuyers or refinance that will help you pay for the cost of the ADU and underwrite the income from the ADU as part of the loan product. And in some cases, It looks like nonprofits that will come in and 
master lease a piece of your property so you don't have to do anything. You lease the property, you get the income from it, they build the ADU and manage the, the tenant so that you're not responsible for any of that. And there are pilot programs like that in other cities. All of these things I just described happen in other places. And part of LIST's job is to bring those resources here. June Wolf described to me how the zoning regulations in Berkshire County impeded building multifamily housing as well as impeding using multiple small units on large lots. How are we increasing the supply? One way that we discovered is it's slow, but it works, is contract has become receivers. So towns that have abandoned properties, they can go to the attorney general's office and the and work with the attorney general to um, enroll that property in the abandoned housing initiative. They can name construct as a receiver and we will flip it and turn it into affordable housing. So we get grants from the sources that you were talking about earlier and we invest those in this property and then we sell it for less than we have in it because the grant allows us to do that. And we just we just picked the person who's going to buy our first one. And so we're working on putting that under contract to sell a house for $250,000 that we spent about $290,000 on. And then we've been named a receiver on a second house and we'll do the same thing. We'll put probably $350,000 in it and sell it because everything's gotten more expensive and sell it for $250,000. You noted that you sell them for less than it costs. That's an obvious benefit to the tenant, to the owner. It makes it affordable. How do you keep it in the housing supply as affordable housing? That's a great question. We put a deed restriction on it. So every town is supposed to have 10% affordable housing. Right. So part of this process of being a receiver for affordable housing is applying to the Department of Housing and Community Develop to list these units as local action units. Uh, so it's just this big fat piece of red tape that uh, <laughs> we, we get to do and we submit our deed restriction for approval. So we, we tell the Department of Housing and Community Development that when we sell this house, it will be a deed restricted house. It's complicated, but there's something called a multiplier and that's how much they can use to sell the house. So we're not trying to attract flippers. We get calls from people who say, I want to pay cash for this. And I say, this is not for you. This is for someone who is going to build equity. They're not going to make a killing flipping a $250,000 house in, a t in 10 years, but they will build equity during that time. LISC San Antonio works to facilitate additional affordable housing for older and younger citizens, building upon programs that have worked in other cities. Leela, can you tell us about some? I think that most older Americans do feel that their quality of life has improved in many aspects as they age, and they do have greater capacity. But we don't tend to focus on this country, at least on those positive aspects, on the increase in wisdom and experience and capacity to handle situations. And, you know, one of the examples that the Area Foundation uses is rebranding a bus from, in, this is in Boston, from senior center service to carrying Boston's most experienced citizens. 
So these are the people who know how to solve problems, right? And so how do we specifically overcome our biases and look for solutions that are just as innovative and creative as this population? And one of them, you talked about specific issues. This is something that I've said that people are always surprised by. We have enough beds for every person in San Antonio to go to sleep in a bed in a bedroom tonight. We do not have a problem with housing supply. We have a problem with a market that doesn't let people who need housing access it easily. And that's financial, but it's also for folks who may not be able to access it because of mobility impairments or because the housing supply isn't a place they can't get to because they don't have a car. Almost none of us think about maybe you have a kids yourself, or you have college-age nieces or nephews or friends, if one of those young people called and said, hey, I've got a roommate and we're moving into our first apartment, none of us would find that odd. But when we started talking about a program where older San Antonians were matched to share a house, there was a kind of, well, why would we do that? That that sound, that doesn't sound, is that safe? Is that, of course. <laughs> and it makes so much sense. If you're living in a home that has three bedrooms and you only ever use one of them and there's a real opportunity to have not only companionship, but to share the burden of homeownership. And these programs can work in many ways. You can have a younger person you're sharing with who does some of the physical work around the place that may be less safe or less attractive as you get older. Or you can match with someone your own age who might share interests and provide the companionship model. And we saw this during COVID where folks moved in together to form like a little pod, a supportive pod. Living alone is a relatively new thing. If you go back 125, 100 years, less than one in 20 Americans lived alone. Now it's about 20% or more. So we need to figure out ways that both combat the lack of affordable, accessible housing and provide the social supports that people need at all stages of life. This is not just for older Americans, but it's a particularly good strategy for them. I had not heard this as a program. Is it happening? Does it have a name? So believe it or not, in America, there are for-profit providers who do this. <laughs> this is a market niche. So there's an organization called Silvernest that matches people up and you use their proprietary platform, a program called Nesterly. So Right now, we're in the stage of figuring out, is there a way that the city or other interested parties can contract to make that system accessible? But it, this is one of the strategies that Salsa has adopted. It's how sharing is a strategy that was recommended in the ship. And it's also a recommended strategy for younger people, for example, foster youth, who may need a more supportive network as they're coming out of a placement, it, particularly if they never you know, found a residential placement with a family. Yes, this is a strategy that's moving forward along with ADUs. And it's one of the approaches that checks off a, a lot of boxes. And for example, the issue of making existing housing more accessible, physically more accessible, it makes a lot of sense if you're going to retrofit a house with the ramp or widening doorways or providing grab bars, that you now have a great environment that has more features of what we call universal design. And that makes it more suitable for a roommate who might also have mobility challenges if you yourself may use a walker or a cane or have other issues. Thank you, Lila Powell, Barney Frank, June Wolf, and Victor Miramontes for what you are doing to address the affordable housing deficit. 
And thank you for presenting us with so many ideas and options that we can discuss and explore in the context of our own communities. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBR-FM 87.9 Pittsfield for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.